Well, uh, good afternoon, and uh, thank you all of you for braving the inclement weather today to join us here at the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Alex Narasta, and I'm the Immigration Policy Analyst at Cato. Now, 2013 was a tremendously exciting but also frustrating year for immigration reform. The Senate passed a 1,200-page immigration reform bill in the summer, while the House of Representatives uh, looked at sort of piecemeal legislation but ended up not doing a whole lot with it. For myriad reasons, immigration reform failed last year and has a relatively slim chance of becoming law in 2014. Now, I think one reason why immigration reform failed in 2013 was because there were a few fresh ideas in the Senate immigration reform bill. The same standard portions were there, of course, legalization for some unauthorized immigrants, a modest increase in the future flow of lawful immigrants and migrant workers, and beefed up immigration enforcement. But the methods of achieving those outcomes were similar to reform efforts in previous years. Here at Cato, we're committed to creating and analyzing new potential policy outcomes that are consistent with our values of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Now that brings us to today's topic, a state-based visa in addition to uh, federal visas. Now as a potential addition to our immigration system, guest worker visas confined to within the borders of a state are less restrictive than many current guest worker visas where the worker is tied to a single employer. State-based visas would also allow a reasonable amount of input from the states in regulating the flow of future immigrant workers on state-based visas. States could ratchet up the number of immigrants allowed to enter their states or decrease them based on economic or other conditions that they perceive. Regional economic growth rates differ dramatically across the United States. Perhaps immigration policy should differ as well instead of being tied to a single federal policy that limits worker migration. Recently, Michigan Governor Rick Snyder has proposed a regional visa to aid the city of Detroit in its economic recovery, or its hoped for economic recovery, while Senator Rand Paul has also spoken approvingly of regional and state-based visas. Other nations like Canada and Australia have used regional visas for years with some positive results, but also some uh, mixed and negative results. Perhaps state-based visas could be a portion of future immigration reform efforts, which is what we're here to discuss today. Now, today's format is going to be a little bit different compared to our other policy forums. First, Brandon Fuller will explain the basics of how a state-based visa policy could work, some of the economic benefits, and legal issues that arise. Sheikha Dalmia will then delve into more detail about the benefits of such a system, especially in today's policy climate. Ryan Salam will then explain the problems of such a system would encounter, as well as some of the bright spots, but focus a lot about the, uh, the problems and some uh, potential arguments counter to them. Brennan and Sheikha will then respond to Ryan's criticism, and we'll give Ryan the last word. We'll then open this forum up for questions from the audience. So let me introduce our speakers today. Brandon Fuller is a director and research scholar at the New York University Stern School of Business Urbanization Project. Prior to joining NYU, Fuller was director of the Charter Cities nonprofit. Previously, he worked on the content team at the education technology company, Applia, during its startup phase. He was also an adjunct professor of economics at the University of Montana, where we earned a master's of arts in economics. He is also co-author, along with Sean Rust, of a forthcoming Cato policy analysis entitled State-Based Visas, a Federalist Approach to Reforming U.S. Immigration Policy. Our next speaker will be Sheikha Dalmia. She is a senior policy analyst at the Reason Foundation and a columnist for Bloomberg View and at the Washington Examiner. She recently 
<clears throat> she writes regularly for Reason Magazine and is a frequent contributor to just about every major newspaper in the United States, from the Wash Wall Street Journal to LA Times and many in between. Dalmia was co-winner of the first 2009 Bastiat Prize for online journalism for her columns in Forbes and Reason. She lives in the Detroit area, so we are especially glad to have her out here today in our comparatively worse weather. <laughs> Rayan Salam is an ultra-prolific columnist at Reuters, writer of the Agenda blog at, at National Review, and a contributing editor to National Affairs, as well as a policy advisor at E21. And between all of these jobs, he is also a National Review Institute policy fellow. He is the co-author of the provocative book, Grand New Party, how Republicans can win the working class and save the American dream. If you haven't read his work, you've probably read other people commenting on it. Without further delay, Brandon. Thank you, Alex. Um, let me know if I need to speak up. I'm a notoriously soft talker, but I think the mic has got me here. A little bit louder. Okay. Um, so it's great to be here, uh, particularly with uh, Shika and Raihan, um, two people who's writing on this topic I, I greatly admire. Um, and I want to thank Alex and Cato. It's been a pleasure working with them, um, thinking through this topic over the past few months. And as he mentioned, my co-author Sean Rust and I have a policy paper on this topic coming out next month. Um, I wanted to start with Michigan Governor Schneider, uh, sorry, Michigan, Michigan Governor Rick Snyder's proposal uh, for the use of EB2 visas in Detroit. I wanted to sort of use that as a launching pad to get into a discussion of a more federalist approach to immigration policy. Um, what Schneider has proposed is effectively to carve out a portion of EB2 visas for the exclusive use by the city of Detroit. Um, so EB2 visas, if you're not familiar with them already, are essentially employment-based green cards for high-skill workers. Um, so clearly this is, this is part of Snyder's broader effort, Michigan's broader effort to revitalize Detroit. Uh, typically to get to sponsor an employee with an EB2 visa, a firm would have to demonstrate that that position couldn't be filled by an American worker. What Schneider's proposing here is that that requirement be waived in exchange for a commitment to live and work in the city of Detroit. So there's precedent for uh, this, this sort of thing. Um, at the moment, physicians on EB2 visas, physicians get EB2 visas if they agree to work in underserved areas for a, for a period of five years. Um, so, you know, Snyder's proposal here is, is no panacea for Detroit. If you haven't read Chica's um, commentary on this and reason, I suggest it. Um, this would only work in Detroit in tandem with probably dramatic improvements in public safety and governance and the generation of more economic opportunity there. Um, but I think that Snyder's proposal pushes the immigration conversation, the national immigration conversation, in a useful direction. Um, what the, the ways in which I would change this would be to give all states and cities, not just Michigan and Detroit, the ability to recruit immigrants and to create additional visas rather than to carve visas out of existing federal programs. Okay. So um, what I'll do now is just focus a little bit on what, what 
a federalist approach, a more federalist approach to immigration in the United States might look like. Um, so Sean and I, at, at, at the prompting of Alex and the folks here at Cato, have begun to refer to this as a state-based immigration approach or state-based visas. Um, so a state-based visa would be a temporary work visa that would allow the holder to live and work within the sponsoring state. So the states would sponsor the visas in our proposal rather than employers. Um, the federal government would be responsible for setting some basic entry criteria, so screening the candidates and so forth. Um, it would also set a term, a natural starting point for the term might be a three-year term, similar to the H-1B visa. Um, Law-abiding visa holders would be eligible for renewal, just like H-1B, and the visa would be dual intent, also like H-1B, so that while the person is here visiting the United States, they'd be eligible, eligible to apply for permanent residency. Um, in terms of the other specifics about state-based visas um, and who would receive them, so which immigrants would be sponsored, Sean and I are suggesting that those sorts of choices should largely be left up to the states. Um, so the idea here is to give the states that welcome additional immigrants the opportunity to recruit them um, with minimal impact on the states that do not want additional immigrants. Um, so let's think a little bit about the, the choices with these visas that would be left up to the states. So the different ways in which states could tailor their state-based visa program to suit their needs. So one obvious uh, dimension here would just be the skill mix, the skill composition of the immigrants that the state sponsors. So they would choose based on local economic needs in consultation with municipalities and firms and residents in the state. Uh, states would also choose source countries. So this could be important, for example, if there's an existing population of a successful immigrant community within a state and the state wants to reinforce that success, it may choose to recruit immigrants uh, from, from countries where people have already arrived to the state. Um, things like proof of employment. So for example, if, you, if, you have to, if you're required to show that you have a job before you arrive in the state, um, that would be up to states. States could also take an approach more like the diversity visa lottery where the candidates that are just considered employable are allowed to come to the United States even if they don't have proof of, uh, of a job. Um, so other things that states uh, could, other parameters that states could decide here include whether the immigrant would be uh, required to buy property. Um, they could decide on criteria for recruiting immigrant entrepreneurs, people who may not come in with a specific position in a, in a firm. Uh, they could decide, for example, whether the people would be able to bring dependents with them, okay, or take an approach similar to Canada's where that's not allowed in terms of economic immigration. Um, important here, and this sort of ties back to Snyder's proposal, states would also be able to set uh, location requirements for state-based visa holders. So they could decide, for example, whether um, they could decide, for example, whether the visa holder would be allowed to live and work throughout the state, or whether they'd be restricted to a certain municipality or a certain metropolitan area. Um, 
One thing that the federal government could do here is allow states to collaborate um, in order to unify metropolitan labor markets, for example. You could imagine New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut collaborating and allowing their state-based visa holders to live and work in any of the three states. Um, another opportunity here for collaboration would be for seasonal migrants. So, for example, California could collaborate with Washington uh, so that agricultural workers could work in either state depending on the season. Um, one potentially useful outcome of a more federalist approach would just be what we tend to see with competitive federalism in general. States are experimenting with different policies. States are learning. Best practices are emerging. States can copy from one another. The federal government can, can copy immigration policies from states that, that get them right. Um, at least as Sean and I propose this, where, where states would be sponsoring uh, the visa holders rather than firms, we think that this would also present an attractive alternative to the, the current employment-based uh, visa system. So the current employment-based visa system ties the foreigner to a specific firm. Uh, under the state-based visa system, the foreign worker would be allowed to work for any firm in the state or the specified region. Right? So you'd have more matching opportunities between foreign workers and local firms. That would lead to thicker labor markets, which would improve the economic prospects of those local areas and make them more attractive to firms that are considering relocating or expanding. Um, it also gives additional freedom, obviously, to the local firms and, and the uh, foreign workers. Um, it's worth mentioning here that, that this is not something new and untested. There are examples internationally of a regional approach to immigration uh, working reasonably well. Um, both Canada and Australia adopted regional immigration policies in the 1990s. Uh, both programs appear to enjoy relatively high retention rates, although retention rates differ across provinces or states. So the degree to which people arrive in a state that sponsors them and then stay there permanently will differ depending on the region. Um, Raihan might get into this a little bit, but as you might suspect, depressed regions tend not to retain people quite as well as regions that are doing better economically. Um, these programs have positive reviews generally from local firms, regional governments, the immigrants that participate in them. Um, to give you a sense of the size of these programs and proportionally what that might look like in the United States, Canada's provincial nominee program is the second largest source of economic immigration in Canada. Uh, in 2011, Canada brought 38,000 foreign workers in through the provincial nominee program. So that's roughly, proportionately for the United States, that'd be like 300,000 foreign workers. Uh, the proportional numbers if we compared it to Australia, it would be something like 200,000 workers in the United States. So that gives you a, an idea of the size of these programs in their respective countries. Um, and although retention rates vary uh, across states and provinces, overall they're relatively high. Okay, so in the mid-2000s, the, the last years we had data for Canada, it was seeing three-year retention rates near 80% 
overall for its provincial nominee program, meaning that if I move to a province and they sponsored they sponsor my permanent residency in this case through the provincial nominee program, I was, you know, 80% chance I was still there after three years. Um, so we're making the case, uh, Sean and I are making the case that, that the United States should follow suit here and consider uh, a more federalist approach. Um, this is based on the conviction that states together with localities and local firms understand their immigration needs better than Washington. Um, states are also the ones that tend to incur the short-term fiscal costs of immigration, and they're in a better position to understand the downside risks from immigration um, and whether they're capable of dealing with, with those. Um, they also understand which immigrants will be beneficial and under what conditions uh, immigration will be beneficial. So we're arguing that federal immigration reform should give states greater say in tailoring immigration policy uh, to their specific circumstances. So I'll hand this over to Shika. Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. Uh, can you hear me? <clears throat> um, I've been writing about immigration for about two decades now, and uh, while this is not an issue that brings out the better angels of Americans ever, I don't think I have ever seen the debate quite this polarized. Um, part of the reason is that the advent of new media has uh, polarized the issue uh, by allowing non-mainstream voices to speak loudly and to build support for their position. So on one hand, you have uh, websites such as VDARE and conservative uh, radio talk, show hosts, uh, talk shows whipping up restrictionist sentiment. On the other hand, you have now a significant number of voices making the case for various versions of open borders. Now, given this background, a proposal to regionalize our immigration system along the lines that Brandon suggest, uh, suggested offers a Solomon-like solution in my view. The big difference is that in this case, Splitting the baby between Uncle Sam and the states is actually the wiser course of action. And there are plenty of reasons for this. Uh, the economic case for the proposal is pretty obvious, and uh, Brandon laid it out. It'll allow states far greater flexibility to recruit foreigners who meet their particular needs, their labor needs, rather than some distant federal bureaucrats that are planning the labor market for the entire country without having the kind of local specific knowledge that is necessary to make uh, good, good decisions. So no longer will Cupertino, California's needs for STEM graduates be prioritized over, say, Florida's needs for seasonal workers or farmhands or you know, mason and welders of a city experiencing a construction boom. One of the best things about the PNP program that uh, Canada has adopted and Brandon alluded to is that it is not based on this one-size-fits-all economically meaningless distinction between high-skilled and low-skilled workers. In fact, you know, I was talking to, uh, researching a piece I was working on, I was talking to an immigration lawyer in one of the provinces and I kept talking to him about high-skilled workers and it, he, and he, and he kept talking about plumbers and welders. And I didn't know what, you know, what the 
disconnect was. Then it turned out in his particular province, welders and mason work is actually regarded as high-skilled work. So, so they talk about this extremely differently from the way we do, and I think they are actually, they talk about it more rationally than we do. We can talk more <clears throat> in the question and answer period, uh, you know, about this particular issue, but I want to, in my time here, I want to basically focus on five non-economic benefits of our of a more federalized, state-based approach. And uh, <clears throat> David Letterman's style, I'll go from the least to the, you know, the most important. Uh, one is that it would uh, reduce federal coercion and encourage state cooperation. There is not only a mismatch between the kinds of immigrants that states want, but also the, the numbers in which they want it. There is a disagreement among states about how to actually handle immigrant flows. So consider two neighboring states, Arizona and Utah. Arizona wants to stop poor Mexicans streaming across its border, and Utah, Utah wants to redirect uh, this stream to its own borders. Both of them are at the mercy of Uncle Sam. Arizona is discovering that its efforts to snag undocumented aliens not only give it a reputation for nastiness, but also opens it to legal, legal lawsuits uh, from the feds uh, when it crosses its will. Meanwhile, Utah, whose legislature three years ago passed a compact asking Congress for a waiver to carry out a more compassionate and employer-friendly program, is still waiting for the go-ahead. There are two key aspects to Utah's program. One would allow <coughs> illegals to stay in Utah as guest workers if they submit to a background check, pay a fine, and demonstrate a proficiency uh, in English. The other would let Utah residents sponsor undocumented immigrants in order to allow them to work in Utah. In a federalized approach where each state had more, to say, more say in setting its own immigration policy, the illegal problem could solve itself through mutual cooperation between the states, something that Brandon alluded to. They could have compacts, they could have, you know, three states could get together and agree to share the immigration population, you know, what have you. Utah's residents could sponsor, in this case, if they could get the federal government to give them permission, it could sponsor Arizona's illegals, taking them off Arizona's hands, allowing both states to get their preferred outcome. Arizona wouldn't be subjected to federal wrath, and Utah wouldn't be subjected to federal foot dragging. Both would have be able to control their immigration dest destinies a lot more, making the issue far less acrimonious and far more harmonious. The second uh, advantage of a federalized system would be, would be that it would make our immigration conversation more pleasant and humane without any self-righteous finger-wagging from progressives. <laughs> One of the most striking aspects about the immigration debate in Canada and America is that they're totally opposite postures and tones. In America, the land of immigrants, ironically enough, immigrants have come to be regarded as foes of the country rather than its friends. The entire conversation is dominated by an enforcement-first approach, and, uh, you know, and the conversation is about you know, how to crack down on the illegals here, how to crack down on employers through an e-verify system, how many barbed fences would be enough, and if we can get the immigrants here to self-deport, voluntarily self-deport. I think that was Mitt Romney's uh, term of art. In Canada, however, the focus is on how do we recruit the people we want. While America is busy building fences, Canadian provinces are dispatching recruiters all over the world, selling their provinces to prospective residents, kind of like companies go around college campuses recruiting uh, students. 
the beauty of the PNP program is that it hasn't made provinces immigrant friendly by singing John Lennon's Imagine to them. It has given provinces more control over their immigration policies and changed their incentives. Provinces are certainly free to turn away immigrants if they don't want them. But doing so comes with an economic price because businesses are likely to locate to those places where labor is more plentiful. This will mean loss of jobs, tax revenue, population for uh, places that are more hostile to immigrants. Because provinces can control immigration flows to avoid strain on their public goods, there is no downside to immigration from, for them, only an upside. Hence, they compete with each other to spread out the welcome mat rather than build more walls. Uh, <clears throat> it would change our immigration conversation com considerably from enforcement to recruitment if we could move to a state-based system. The third reason to allow for a, for a federalized system would be that it would allow the states to answer their own existential question as to which void they want immigrants to fill for them. In America, various factions are always worrying over what exactly the purpose of immigration policy is. Some believe that immigrants should be recruited to fill some precise economic need. Others advocate a strong focus on family reunification in order to strengthen and honor America's commitment to the institution of the family. Rehan has written very powerfully about the need for prioritizing high-skilled immigration over family-based one. Under a more federalized system, each day state can decide for itself. Now, one caveat that uh, Brandon alluded to and I'll mention, ultimately, I believe with the exception of minor children or elderly parents, most immigrants come to Canada or America for economic opportunity. There is really no other reason. I mean, even those who come here for asylum purposes wouldn't stay here if there wasn't an economic climate uh, that could absorb them. So if economic opportunities don't exist in certain places, immigrants are unlikely to come, or if they come, they won't stay. This is why immigration flows are actually fairly self-regulating. But that's also the reason I'm very skeptical about the workability of Michigan Governor Rick Snyder's scheme to recruit immigrants for urban renewal purposes in Detroit. But just because immigrants want to come for economic reasons does not mean that states can't have some other purpose as well in mind when they try to recruit them. So in example, for, for example, in Canada, provinces recruit immigrants with an eye towards nurturing or strengthening some ethnic, cultural, or linguistic end. Quebec wanted to import more French speakers in order to buttress the French-speaking population. Other provinces have large German and Eastern European populations, and they want to uh, strengthen their cultural ties with those parts of the world and also provide a support base for the new immigrants and allow them to be more successful. So they go to those countries to recruit. Now, one might disagree with some of these ends, and I certainly do, but nobody can disagree that you know it's a good thing that provinces have the flexibility to choose their ends. Um, in America, on the other hand, Uncle Sam decides for all state what the states what their ends are to be, and everybody has to then fall in line. Uh, the fourth reason for why this would be a good system is it would actually turn states into laboratories of democracy on immigration policy, as sort of the founders envisioned. If you've been covering immigration for as long as I have, you know that yet another study on whether immigrants complement native skills or compete with them, create or cost native jobs, will not settle this debate. And Rehan will, I think, get into that a little bit more. The, the evidence that scientific studies produce, while important, always 
has and always will be contested when policy is based on it, especially when the stakes are, are high and people can't out, opt out of whatever it is that Washington decides for them. In a federalized system, each state will be, will be able to field test its own hunch. And if two very comparable states like Utah and Arizona opt for widely different immigration approaches, we'll get something resembling a controlled lab experiment in the real world whose results will be instructive for everyone. My, you know, this is completely hypothetical, but I would imagine that over time immigration policies of various states would converge as states voluntarily, voluntarily emulate the lessons of their more successful years. It might take many decades for this to play out, but the end result will be achieved with relatively less acrimony than if the federal government had tried to impose the same solution top down. Now, that's how it's actually played out on the right to work issue. I don't know how, much, how many of you follow uh, you know, uh, union uh, battles, but I live in Michigan, so it's unavoidable for me. Um, after the federal government enacted the Taft-Hartley Taft Act in 1947, allowing states to opt out of closed shop arrangements, southern states became right to work, while northern states opted to remain union shops. In right-to-work states, union can't unions can't forcibly extract dues from workers as a condition of employment. This considerably weakens the hold of unions in the workplace. So as manufacturing and industry have located south to take advantage of a more business-friendly, hospitable environment, northern states have had to rethink their pro-union policies. Even Michigan, a union stronghold, Ten years ago, it would have been unimaginable that it would be a right-to-work state, and yet two years ago, it became a right-to-work state. Um, in a federalized approach, if a federalized approach worked for employers on the manufacturing end, it's likely that it would work for labor on the other end. Uh, and the fifth and the last reason for why a federalized approach will be good is because it'll put Uncle Sam in a limited and confined space. One of the most attractive features of the PNP program in Canada is uh, that it lives up to American principles of limited government and liberty. Immigrants should be based on, immigration should be based on the socioeconomic needs of a country's residents, not the arbitrary whims of central planners. This implies that the federal government has a legitimate role in keeping out foreigners who pose a genuine public health or safety threat to the citizenry. Uh, it should also determine who gets to be, become a citizen, the naturalization process. Other than that, it shouldn't have much to say in the matter. Under a federalized system, employers and individuals would apply to the federal government to bring in a foreigner. The government could reject those who failed a background check or were afflicted with some dangerously contagious disease. But barring that, entry would be allowed. In other words, there would be a presumption for liberty built into our immigration policies that would require the government to justify to states and employers why they can't bring someone to the country, not for states and employers to justify to the government why they ought to be allowed. Canada comes close to this. The federal government certainly sets an overall quota for each province, although more and more provinces now want to, wanted to stop doing that and they want to set their own quota. But within that quota, Ottawa approves nearly 96% of the foreigners nominated by the provinces. Its criteria for rejection is minimalist. By contrast, in America, Uncle Sam's is maximalist. 
the best way to understand America's current system is that it effectively imposes a blanket ban on immigration and then arbitrarily relaxes this ban based on predefined bureaucratic categories or some political whim of the moment, whether it is family reunification, ethnic diversity, or some other political goal that may or may not have anything to do with the real needs of the economy or Americans. The vast majority of applicants, even for temporary visas, even in the desired skilled category, are rejected every year. This is no way to run an immigration system, immigration policy anywhere, I submit to you, least of all in the land of liberty, whose most iconic image is the Statue of Liberty, welcoming the world's tired and huddled masses to its shores. Uh, thanks very much uh, to Alex for inviting me. Uh, I'm delighted to be on a panel with uh, Shika and Brandon, both of whom are writers I've learned an enormous amount from. Uh, and I think that Brandon and Sean have written a very provocative and interesting paper. Um, so I should say at the outset that I imagine I disagree pretty sharply with, uh, with my fellow panelists uh, regarding the larger immigration question. Uh, I am someone who believes uh, in... Uh, increasing immigration levels, yet I also believe uh, that we ought to change the skill mix, the composition uh, of immigrants arriving in the United States, but I'm going to try to actually bracket that and focus on some other issues in my remarks right now, uh, and we can revisit that later. Shika also raised a lot of very interesting normative questions, and, and uh, I might touch on some of those, but I, I, I'm happy to kind of leave that to later as well. I want to actually start by talking to you about the U.S. immigration debate in the context of another big, powerful country you might have heard of. It's called China. And uh, China is a country uh, that has really gone through enormous changes. Now, we're familiar with this idea that China has gone through enormous economic liberalization since the late 1970s, but it's actually much, much deeper than that. The Chinese economy and its society have been transformed partly because if you look at uh, China uh, as recently as the late 70s going into the 80s, you had a country in which individuals were tied to particular municipalities even beyond that, they were actually often tied to neighborhoods within, uh, within a municipality. Uh, so the typical life of a Chinese person for much of that post-communist era was a life in which your life was circumscribed by your state-controlled employer. You were part of something called Donway. You were part of a work unit. And so, again, you were, you were very circumscribed geographically. And so you didn't really have something that we in the United States would recognize as civil society. Yet one thing that's really striking is that when China began opening its economy, the way they did it is through what some might call institutional outsourcing. Uh, that is, they allowed, uh, you know, kind of China to become a part of big complex, the big complex division of labor that lots of companies in garment manufacturing and other sectors were starting to build. But that required the Don way to break down. So people who are literally living in the equivalent of walled compounds within their cities were actually freed up to work anywhere within your given city. Uh, and then later, that freedom was extended to people throughout an entire province. But you still have the persistence of something called the Huji system, uh, in which people have this uh, thing called a huku, uh, a household registration form. And everyone has to be tied to a particular location. Now, the thing is that as the Chinese economy boomed, uh, as the Chinese economy expanded, you have a lot of people who are leaving their registered households, often in rural areas, and shifting to urban areas. Uh, and, you know, that's to enable this larger economic transformation. The trouble is that the, the Huji system didn't actually keep up with this migration. So what you saw happen is a huge number of people in big, teeming Chinese cities who didn't actually have the right to abode 
in their city. So they didn't actually have the right to access a wide range of important social services and other services. They didn't really have much of a voice in their communities. They were tolerated, but they were actually part of this kind of shadow economy. Uh, and what, one thing that's really encouraging, and again, you know, China is still uh, an authoritarian country. It's a deeply illiberal country. But one thing that's been interesting is that economic liberalization and economic freedom has actually made a real change in the texture of people's lives. As people have had this greater flexibility with regards to where they can live and where they can move, um, you've actually seen this flourishing uh, of a world outside of the state. Uh, and so actually the, the Huji system has been steadily undermined to the point where now uh, China's central leadership is saying that, well, we're going to move towards abolishing this. And that's really good news because the thing is that if you're someone who's a rural migrant before, you were utterly vulnerable. You had very few uh, legal and social rights. Whereas as we move towards abolishing this Huji system, that's going to change. And I think that that's enormously uh, positive for human freedom. So what I find interesting about the idea of state-based visas uh, is that there's a danger that we might be creating an American Huji or American Huku system uh, you know, through the best of intentions. My understanding is that you know, Brandon and Chica, like me, believe that immigration is a very positive force. Uh, and so they see state-based visas as a way to yield a net increase in immigration. In fact, uh, Brandon and Sean are very explicit about the idea that state-based visas can, it has to be a net increase. So you're not gonna actually have a carve out from current, kind of the current employment track or whatever else. So, okay, so number one, you're saying that the current immigration policy and kind of like roughly the current number that we have, that's going to be left largely intact. So actually, the state autonomy that you're granting different jurisdictions is actually only going to be on top of that. So the level of autonomy that you're really giving states to kind of think through how do we actually rethink our immigration policies is actually pretty tightly circumscribed. Now, I don't actually think it's such a bad thing to tightly circumscribe, uh, you know, what state and local governments do. Shika expressed a lot of enthusiasm about Canada's provincial nominee program and about the idea of a robustly decentralized system. And I find that idea attractive too in principle. But one of my anxieties is, is this. So when we look at Quebec, for example, the Quebec provincial government, uh, so it is true that they've tried to identify immigrants who are French-speaking to reinforce their local ethnic majority. And it's true that in uh, provinces like Alberta and Manitoba, you had historical Ukrainian populations, for example. And so you kind of want to increase immigrants from the former Soviet Union. But when you think about the United States, immigration debates have interacted with uh, ethnic and cultural and civil rights concerns in lots of very complicated ways. In fact, when you look at the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, this was an act that was passed in the context of Cold War politics. There was a real anxiety in the United States that America was alienating many of the new democracies uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia by having an immigration policy that was perceived to be correctly as effectively racially exclusive. Uh, and so, you know, one consequence of that, uh, you know, and so, you know, during this debate, many people said, oh, well, don't worry, we're not going to see a huge influx of people like me, people who, uh, second generation folks whose parents are immigrants from Asia and Latin America and what have you. And, that, and that's actually one thing that tells you a little bit about how where a debate starts is not always where a debate winds up. But bracketing that issue, when you look at, for example, the upper Midwest of the United States, uh, you see a situation right now in which in the Twin Cities, for example, you have real struggles with the local Somali population, uh, which has had a very challenging time integrating into uh, you know, the local economy. You have 
pretty high rates of marginalization, uh, pretty high rates of linguistic isolation and much else. Now, that's not to say this community will not eventually flourish, but that's caused a problem in the short term. On the other hand, you see Somali populations in upstate New York uh, that have integrated relatively well. So again, this is something that's going to work out differently in different places. Uh, but imagine you had the Minnesotans say, you know what, we're not going to welcome more Somalis uh, into our state. But then if you have, for example, folks in Wisconsin saying, well, you know what, we have a historic Northern European character, and we actively welcome the idea of uh, inviting immigrants, actively recruiting immigrants, shall we say, uh, from Norway, Germany, Holland, and a variety of other countries that have formed the kind of historical ethnic core of the upper Midwest. My suspicion is that there are at least some people in the United States who might find such policies objectionable uh, and, and might believe that, well, gosh, we're allowing through the back door uh, a kind of ethnic cultural privileging that, that we don't feel entirely comfortable with. And actually, when you think about U.S. governance and U.S. federalism, uh, it, it's been deeply intertwined with these kinds of racial and cultural questions. Indeed, it's one of the reasons why, you know, when you look under the Voting Rights Act until relatively recently, there was this idea of preclearance. So, for example, with state-issued visas, would you have to have pre-clearance in which the Department of Justice is assessing uh, not only the explicit impact of these immigration policies, but let's say you don't even actually have some bias towards people from one nationality or to another. Let's say the bias winds up being implicit in which we find that, well, gosh, there's actually a differential burden. We find that over time, you are privileging your immigration policy in, you know, uh, towards immigrants from some societies rather than others. I think that that would be a, a really problematic outcome. And yet, actually, that's a big part of the attraction, potentially, on federalism grounds, that different states can have tailor-made solutions to their own economic, but also their cultural needs. Uh, so you know, then there's the idea of competition. And I'm a big believer in competitive federalism. But the thing is that you know, when we think about the way that federalism in the United States has evolved in recent decades, it's not obvious to me that it's evolved in a way that's leading states to compete more with each other. Uh, and I think part of the problem here is actually the way that conservatives talk about the issue. So conservatives, particularly since the post-civil rights era, often talk about federalism in the context of states' rights. We want to give states more autonomy to do what they will. We want to protect states. Uh, you know, and if states want to legislate on the same thing that the federal government wants to legislate on, let's let them do it. Another model of federalism, however, is that actually you want more unitary authorities. That is, you want the federal government to be legislating and regulating in some domains, for example, having a common economic market, uh, you know, protecting interstate competition. But you want state governments to actually have exclusive authority in some domains as well, partly because this lends itself to greater coherence and governance, but also partly because that lends itself to real competition as opposed to what you might call cartel federalism. So there are some folks, including libertarian folks, who believe that you know, if you have minimum wage laws, a federal minimum wage law, effectively what you're doing is creating a cartel that's protecting high-wage states that want to have high minimum wages against potential competition from lower-wage states. Shika invoked uh, you know, right-to-work states. And of course, as we all know, there are some people in the organized labor movement who would prefer that there not be any right-to-work states, right? So that's you know, when you think about a federalism cartel. But then, you know, the, the way that competition works is where actually you bear the consequences of your decisions as well as the benefits of your decisions, right? 
Uh, and so when you're thinking about state-based visas, which again, can only be understood as a net increase, uh, but when you're thinking about that, think about the incentives of local politicians. Now, David Schleicher, a tremendously bright guy, who is a professor at George Mason University, has done a lot of neat work on the quality of state and local democracy. And what he finds is that actually Americans tend to pay very limited attention to politics at the state and local level. And so that leads to a situation in which actually partisanship at the national level is just directly translated to partisanship at the state and local level in a very problematic kind of way. And because there's not a lot of... Um, close attention paid to state and local governments, you often have an opportunity for self-dealing. So let's say I'm in a state like Nebraska, which has a very influential meatpacking industry. Or let's say there are a variety of other states in which uh, you, know, you have agriculture industries in Florida and California and other states that have actually used, for example, agricultural subsidies to punish states like Minnesota, other states with commodity crops from uh, competing with them to grow fruit and other commodities. Okay. So let's say you know, you're a local politician. You're not going to be in office for all that long. Maybe you'll be in, in the mix for a decade, a decade and a half, something like that. So you're really responsible for these short-term outcomes and actually providing benefits in a short-term way for local employers. The trouble is that it's possible that today's immigration policies will yield substantial costs over the long term. And not only that, but they might also yield uh, costs that are actually not going to be generated by the state government but actually by the federal government. So for example, when we think about the agricultural market, this is a market that is very poorly understood. So it's not the case that fruit pickers and other folks are earning you know, the lowest possible wages. Actually, the wages are actually substantially above the minimum wage. Yet you don't have a ton of native-born workers who undertake this work, despite the fact that they can often get a much better wage doing that kind of work than they could, let's say, working in food service. So why is that? Well, one reason is this work is very physically taxing. And when you're talking about very physically taxing work, you're talking about work that also generates medical expenditures over time. And when you're dealing with people of very low household market incomes, those medical expenditures are going to have to be met by someone. And it's oftentimes implicitly backstopped and financed by the federal government rather than state and local governments. Uh, you know, Medicaid is a classic example of a cooperative program in which federal dollars lead states to spend more money than they might in the absence of those federal dollars because it's a match. And we can talk more about that uh, if you'd like. Um, so again, I think when you're looking at all of these different dimensions, I think the state-based visa program you know, might be an attractive way to change the terms of the political debate, but it's not clear that it's a, a very well-thought-out proposal in terms of meeting these underlying issues. And I say all of this even if you want much more immigration. I would argue that if you want much more immigration, let's have an open debate. Let's have a unified national labor market in which people can move from one place to another rather than creating our own American hukou system. That would be the best thing. And let's have an open and honest debate about that. Thanks very much. And now Brandon, sure. and now Brandon is going to respond to some of Rayhan's comments. <laughs> Great. Um, so I appreciate the, the moderation of the critique. The hukou system is not one I've heard before. Um, it's useful, though, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, so, so I think it's, 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 uh, it's also easier to respond to <laughs> moderate criticism like that. I have heard concentration camps, um, <laughs> which struck me as uh, just wildly wrong. But um, so I think, I think one thing to think about is you have to evaluate this proposal in the context of what we currently have. And actually, one thing that I think Raihan and I agree about is um, that the employment-based visa system has some serious drawbacks. 
in the sense that it ties workers to one specific firm. So in that regard, it effectively restricts their location as well, mind you. So in that regard, we already have a bit of an American HUCO system uh, in terms of immigration policy. This proposal would grant the foreign workers uh, and firms more freedom compared to the existing system. So I think it's an, a, an improvement and a step in the right direction in that regard. Um, I don't think that the right way to compare this, to think about this proposal is to compare it to what a perfect world would look like. We, we don't live in a perfect world. Immigration policy in the United States is deeply flawed. So the question we should be asking is, does this improve things compared to the current situation? The other point I'd make in terms of the HUCO system, um, Chinese citizens don't have a choice. Right? They're born into this system. Um, if they choose to leave their village where they have household registration rights and they have essentially collective village property rights and work in the city, they don't have access to public services in the city unless they achieve household registration status, which is very difficult, if not impossible, in, in most circumstances. It, it, um, that's changing, as Ryan suggested, for the better. Um, but th they, what they do have is they can fall back on the rights that they have in, in their village. What we're proposing, and that's not a good system. I think, I think the criticism of the hookah system is spot on. Uh, but what we're proposing is a temporary work visa, right? And, and it's dual intent. So you can apply for permanent residency. If you get permanent residency, you are free to move anywhere you want to in the United States. Uh, you then join the National Unified Labor Market as a permanent residence. It is not uncommon for us to put restrictions, whether it's tying somebody to an employer or even tying somebody to a location, on temporary workers in the United States. So I do not think that this is some draconian step towards uh, you know, Chinese Marxism, all right? So, so I think that that's worth keeping in mind. Um, the other thing is that to the extent that this leads to an, a net increase in immigration, which is something that, that Sean and I are suggesting it should, um, it's also creating additional opportunities for people around the world, opportunities that they did not have in the absence of this sort of program. So again, I just want to emphasize that this is creating more freedom and opportunity for people, not restricting people's freedoms uh, a la the, the HUCO system. Um, I, I accept as valid the critique that there's something not quite right in terms of American values about tying a person to a particular place. Okay? I would only point out that our current immigration system does this in a number of ways. And what we're trying to do is marginally improve that. Um, so that, that's just my, my response on that uh, particular critique. I think that Raihan's, um, this is not one I had heard about, bef heard before, very thoughtful. The, the notion that states may explicitly or, or implicitly end up um, seeking to recruit certain groups at, at the expense of other groups in, in a way that a portion of the American population would find objectionable. Um, I think this is, a, this is a valid concern. Um, I think that I'd have to think through just and in, in game out uh, how likely this scenario is to develop. Um, I think it's 
it's worth recognizing that there are, you know, as, as Raihan pointed out, with the Somali populations in upstate New York are doing relatively well. Uh, those in the Midwest are not doing uh, so well. Um, so, so on this point, I'm, I'm not sure, aside from suggesting federal oversight, which I'm loath to do in this forum in particular, <laughs> that there's something we can do here. I just, I just wonder uh, to what extent um, the government should be legislating diversity uh, in regards to immigration in the first place. Um, you could imagine, for example, some parameters put on the states by the federal government about, about diversity in this sort of program. Um, the other issue I wanted to address, um, I mean, I, I think that the, the, another criticism, which is not one that, that Raihan raised um, here, is, is that retention rates may be low in certain states uh, that are economically depressed. So, so this again, um, which it's difficult to talk about these things at the Cato Institute, but here again may be an opportunity for the federal government to improve uh, the program. One thing that Canada does, for example, with the provincial nominee program is it monitors retention rates. And it uses effectively moral suasion with provinces that are underperforming. So if a maritime province is not retaining the immigrants that it's recruiting, the federal government will say to them, look, you need to reassess the number of immigrants you're recruiting, and um, you need to, to apply better criteria to get people uh, to stay. Um, so I, I, do th I do accept that there, there may be some expanded role for, for federal involvement here beyond what Sean and I have d described in the paper. Thank you, Brandon. Um, I too want to thank uh, Rehan for his very thoughtful and uh, thought-provoking um, critique. Um, you know, if you argue with Rehan, it's like you know being at a baseball pitcher where five pitchers are five bowlers are throwing curved balls at you, except that it's just Rehan all by himself doing it. So. Uh, there is much that he has put on the table. I don't think I can get through all of his points, but let me just uh, begin by uh, basically uh, 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 buttressing what Brandon said, that the comparison with Huku, although interesting and worth maybe thinking about, is not really on point. I've actually written about the Huku system. I visited China five years ago and was actually, that's when I first discovered that they had what is essentially an internal passport system along the lines that Stalin used to have in Russia. And, you know, Russia did away with it, but it has persisted, um, you know, in uh, modern day China. It was put in place by Mao and it was exactly to tie a person to their particular domicile. And if you, the way it works in China is that if uh, somebody from the village wants to go and work in a factory in Beijing, they have to take permission. And then their terms of the, the way they stay, the kinds of support services that they are entitled to in Beijing is very much tied to, you know, which huku, which domicile they come from. That's not even remotely close to what we are proposing over here. There is... Uh, um, uh, yeah, in the in the huku system, also the huku people, when they move from the villages to the cities, they are confined to certain ghettos, you know, that serve the factories where they are supposed to work. That's not, you know, that's nowhere close to what we are proposing over here. This is not an internal passport system. 
people are free to travel. And the crucial difference, as Brandon pointed out, is that after four or five years, you know, you get a permanent residency, which is not something that is currently allowed on the H-2A and the H-2B visas that Mexican workers use to come over here if they can get them. They are extremely hard to get. And once they get them, if they, if they, in order to get this visa, they have to actually sign or, or demonstrate to the immigration official that they have no dual intent of actually settling in the United States, because if they give, um, if they state that intent, their visa is automatically denied. That's the system that we are trying to change over here, make a guest worker program a little bit easier. That'll put these people on the path to permanent residency, which will give them all rights except for you know voting rights. Uh, so completely different. Um, Rehan's other uh, crit uh, criticism about how if you let states uh, 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 more flexibility, they might use that flexibility in order to boot certain numbers of ethnic population, which is, you know, I mean, I frankly, that's one of the qualms that I have about the Canadian system. But let me also just say that, you know, it is possible to overstate that worry, because as I said in my comments, people come to America and Canada not because they want ethnic identity with the population over here, for, but for economic reasons. They come over here because there are economic opportunities. I mean, even in, you know, situations of emergency, when people leave a country because of civil war situation and move across the border to another country uh, and overwhelm that country, they don't stay there for long because there are not economic opportunities there. They disperse, they go to wherever the opportunities are. So regardless of, you know, what the attempt of a particular state might be in order to boost its ethnic numbers, in the long run, I wouldn't worry about that because people tend to move to wherever the opportunities are greater. The key is to maintain that labor flexibility. If you have a flexible labor market, I, I think it's probably not a worry that's going to pan out. Um, and then I'll address one other point, which is the point about, uh, you know, Rehan, about that the cost, you know, self-dealing local politicians, you know, who might get lots of immigrants, you know, because it helps certain company, but then saddle uh, the, you know, the city uh, over the long term with their welfare costs and what have you. Now, this is a variation on an old welfare, uh, old argument against immigration with the problem is that if you have a big welfare state, essentially what you're doing is you're privatizing the benefits of immigration, but socializing the cost of immigration. And, you know, there I would just flatly say it doesn't work out that way. Uh, you know, most studies on immigration uh, and welfare use have shown that they actually don't impose a net cost on the welfare system. That, uh, and especially if you bring in their economic contributions, their economic contributions far overwhelmed whatever cost they impose. So there too, I would say that the, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's okay to theoretically worry about it, but the empirical evidence from the ground is that that's, you know, that worry doesn't usually pan out. So it seems that both Brandon and Shika fell into my trap, which is spending a lot of time talking about the Huku system. Uh, so yeah, I think that it's clearly true that we're not going to mimic 
the Buku system in every detail. But when we're talking about the volume of people, right? So, you know, kind of uh, different estimates vary regarding the uh, net migration rate to the United States in any given year. But, you know, let's say there's a non-trivial number of people who are subject to these state-based visas, right? And actually, I encourage all of you to read Brandon and Sean's paper and to read it very closely, because actually, there's tremendous wherewithal given to state governments regarding uh, how tightly they're regulating uh, the population that is the beneficiary of state-based visas. For example, you could allow them to travel throughout an entire state, and or rather to uh, live and work throughout an entire state, or you could circumscribe them to some uh, jurisdiction within the state as well. Uh, you know, and again, I think that, you know, the people who'd be implementing this, and I think that certainly uh, Shika and, and Brandon are great friends of freedom. Their intention is not to, uh, to limit personal freedom in some kind of egregious way. And they do both see this as a net increase in human freedom for the people coming from outside of the country. I, I fully appreciate that. What I'm suggesting is that, uh, you know, that many of the ideas that they offer as features of the proposal wind up being bugs when we think about how they might actually be implemented in practice. It's going to turn out that much of the vaunted flexibility of the proposal is not actually practicable. So why is that? There's a little term used in the immigration world that you might have heard of called interior enforcement. The idea here is that we don't just have enforcement at the border, but rather we also try to control, for example, the number of people who overstay their visas and much else. Now, interior enforcement is a really, really tricky issue for lots of reasons, partly for civil liberties reasons. Because, you know, we don't necessarily want local police officers doing the job of enforcing immigration laws. There are lots of cities that are like, well, hey, wait a second, if you make me do that, then how are immigrants who might be unauthorized going to come to me about crimes that actually happen in their neighborhood? You know, that's really bad news. The thing is that if you have state-based visas, there's a really tricky issue here. Who is actually going to enforce the provisions of these state-based visas regarding where people live and work. Now, you know, uh, Brandon and Sean are very confident that this is going to be essentially self-regulating because authorized workers tend to earn higher wages than others. That may well be true. But of course, there are some people who are not always going to want to work at any given time. There's going to be some mobility. People might wind up actually living in some other place, et cetera. So if you're thinking that part of the, the attraction of this policy is that you're going to be uh, able, as a state policymaker, to limit congestion costs, or if you believe that's something you're concerned about, Interior enforcement is what we need to think about. Who are we going to be empowering to actually enforce these provisions? And I think that's a really tricky question. I think that the irony is that sometimes when you want to increase human freedom, that means you've got to be very thoughtful about which level of government is actually going to be engaging in enforcement. Um, so I think that that's, uh, you know, that's a pretty important issue. Now, uh, Shika talks about uh, the costs. And again, this is a much, much bigger issue, and we're not going to be able to get too deeply into that. What I would encourage you to think about is that, well, you've got to disaggregate these populations. Uh, and that's actually part of what the Canadians and the Australians do. When we look at uh, Canadian and Australian immigration policy, it's actually pretty interesting. So, for example, in Canada, uh, as we've established, uh, it's actually essentially a voluntary program. If you're nominated by a given province, you don't have to stay there, as Brandon observed earlier on. In Australia, there's this component where it doesn't necessarily have to be voluntary. There are a couple of limited visa programs where you're actually obligated to live in a particular region. Brandon and Sean talk about this in great detail in their paper. Now, the trouble is that in the Australian case, you actually only get to that point where you can have that regional visa if you've already run through the gauntlet of what is actually a pretty tightly regulated Canadian immigration system, a point system uh, that is markedly different from the system that we have in the United States. 
So, you know, I would say that, well, sure, if you adopt something like the Australian system, could you layer state-based visas on top of that? Maybe that would end up being a, a pretty different scenario. But I think that that's kind of how you have to think about it. And then, you know, I, I'm grateful to Brandon for having mentioned the issue of local labor markets. Because, again, one of the chief virtues of this proposal is that you do see depressed cities and depressed regions saying, well, gosh, we could really use a lot more immigrants. But, you know, if it's a voluntary program, you're not going to be able to retain those immigrants ultimately. It's actually the coercion that would actually work for these depressed economic zones. And I appreciate the fact that Chica observed that this Detroit program that's done a tremendous job of putting the idea of state-based or local visas on the map just doesn't make a ton of sense. It's not a great deal for those immigrants. Um, and I think that it's not necessarily something that's going to better our country as a whole. Uh, so lots more to talk about, but I'm so grateful to have been a part of this discussion. Well, thank you very much. We're going to move on to the question and answer segment of the program right now. So just a few uh, points to make about that. Please wait to be called on. Uh, wait for the microphone so that everybody in the room and our audience watching online can hear the question. Please state your name and affiliation. And although this is a libertarian think tank, I will be tightly regulating the question and answer period. So uh, please ask a question, and if you don't ask a question, I will interrupt you and insist that you do. So uh, please, uh, questions from the audience. Uh, yes, this gentleman right here. Thank you. Uh, my name is Zach Brown. I'm a researcher at Georgetown University. Um, I, I'm just curious to follow up on the workplace or interior enforcement question, and I'd be curious to hear both of you talk a little bit more about how that might work in practice, because I imagine that most of us in the room would, would agree that the current system um, doesn't do a very comprehensive job of that, and it's not very politically expedient to really do uh, interior enforcement in a meaningful way. And so how would you address that? the questions raised about different levels of law enforcement in this federalist approach? Thank you. Um, you know, I'm actually not sure I quite understand Rehan's point on that, but to the extent that I do, I mean, what Brandon is proposing over here is to have a system that works naturally on the, you know, the natural ground level incentives. So you really need the minimal hand of govern government to make it work right. So we were talking before the, you know, before the event began. In Canada, for instance, they actually, some of the provinces, some of the provinces actually skipped the guest worker phase altogether and hand landed immigrant status, you know, to the immigrants who show up. And basically that means these immigrants are free to move wherever they want to after that. They don't even have to stay in the province. Despite that, the retention rate for a lot of these provinces is pretty high. In some other provinces, they actually, you know, they can put you in jail if you, if you don't stay in the province for the stipulated amount of time. And from what I understand from talking to various people in Canada is that that actual provision is very rarely used because you have a system where there are so many legal opportunities to stay in the country and that, you know, and, and being a legal immigrants give you a wage premium that Brandon talks about, that the whole need for interior enforcement, you know, comes down considerably. So you need interior enforcement when you have laws in place that are not essentially rational. And so people are tempted to flout them. That's, I mean, our hope is to put in place a more rational system so that, you know, these kinds of draconian enforcement methods would be less necessary. Um, yeah, so 
so in the paper, I think we raise a couple of possibilities beyond just sort of self-regulation. Um, one would be the notion of having the visa holder pay a bond, maybe joint with uh, an employer that, and then registering employers within the region as well. So anytime you make a move, um, you'd have to, the, the employer would have to notify the state and presumably if you violated the terms of the program, you'd lose, you'd lose the bond. Um, I think that enforcement is always going to be an issue with, with uh, immigration policy. There's no bullet, bulletproof solution. I do think that by giving immigrants access to a regional labor market and, giving, and increasing their choice set dramatically in terms of employment, you do mitigate some of the incentive to move into informality somewhere else and break the conditions of, of uh, the visa. I'd also just say that in general, again, retention rates for the programs in Australia and Canada, in Canada where it's purely voluntary, um, are relatively high, um, which suggests that, and there's a screening process here by states. I mean, we can, we can attribute the capacity or lack of capacity to states to do a good job of screening the immigrants that they're sponsoring. But there is, there is a process in place beforehand, and presumably states will be looking for people that are going to want to stick around. And the evidence in Canada suggests that that can be done. Those matches can, can be made. Um, so, yeah, that, that's... Just briefly, I'll just note that the aggregate retention rates are pretty high. Right. But the retention rates in depressed provinces are actually strikingly low, and Brandon and Sean, to their credit, uh, make note of that. Uh, the other thing is that you'll notice that Brandon said that one of the ways to make enforcement actually work is to have some of the states actually tie status to your employer. But again, the whole virtue of the proposal is that you won't tie people to their employers. So again, you know, given that both Shika and Brandon seem to want this plan to lead to more people becoming lawful permanent residents who can travel anywhere they choose, it's not clear to me that this proposal is actually bringing you anything that simply increasing uh, total immigration at the national level uh, wouldn't. Just to clarify, uh, in terms of registering employers, I'm not suggesting that states should, should tie the visa to one employer. Um, it's possible, for example, that a state might register a pool of employers and then having registered those employers, the, the immigrants that they sponsor are free to move among them as they see fit with minimal oversight. So and thus the complexity begins. <laughs> but yes, and it's important to know that that was a feature of a World War I guest worker visa program that the United States had in place, which was registering uh, thousands of employers and letting workers move amongst them according to their own uh, whims. Um, next question. Uh, yes, right there. Back. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dara Lind. I'm with Vox.com. Uh, I kind of want to drill down on the question of how much power employers have, uh, because if taking visas from being tied to employers would actually be a short-term huge blow for employers. So there might be a strong pressure for them to, to pressure state legislatures to approve visa terms that would actually tie state visas to employers. Uh, if that wouldn't be explicitly prevented, what, you know, how, how, would, how would this proposal stop that from happening? And if it did happen that state-based visas happened to end up being tied to employers anyway, how would that affect your assessment of how beneficial the program would be? 
Um, I think my answer here might be predictable. I, I think if it led to a net increase in immigration, even if it were employer-sponsored, we'd be looking at a win. It's not my preferred outcome at all. I think at the federal level, you'd, you'd have to establish some parameters that, that didn't allow that to happen. But if you went truly with the uh, federalist nature of this proposal, you would give states the ability to tie uh, em employees to employers. Now, if states are competing for immigrants, there is at least some pressure to adopt optimal terms on these visas. So it may be that that's, that's less likely to take place. So if, so if Michigan, for example, is having trouble attracting people to Detroit, they might adapt, adopt a more open policy that allows people to move among employers in Detroit or the metro area or wherever. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm not, I think that, I think that it, this would be something that would be worked out if, when, as this is legislated. Um, to me, a big advantage of having states sponsor the visas is that labor market flexibility. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'd be reluctant to give that up um, at, at the federal level. Um, so. Uh, just briefly, I think Dara raises exactly the right question, and I think that uh, you know many employers are going to have substantially more power uh, with state legislatures than they would with Congress, and of course with Congress it's already uh, a serious problem. Next question. Uh, gentleman right back there. Thank you, Alex. Bill Camello with Microsoft, and first of all, thank you for organizing the panel and your ongoing contributions in the space. They've been really, really valuable and very much appreciated. Um, a couple of points on the sort of whether workers are tied, in fact, they're not tied. The, the reality is that if they want their green card, they lose their number in line. But if you look at the Senate provisions, we've sort of advocated for complete portability. Our view is, and we've testified this, if employer treats an employee well, then we shouldn't have to tie them to us, quite frankly. And they should have that complete flexibility to move from any company they want, any place in America. So we would strongly support and have been on the record as supporting that portability. I think the question I have and, and really appreciate the paper, the provocative discussion as everybody's discussed is, what about on the green card side? We've got a huge backlog of probably five to 700,000 folks in the green card backlog right now. Would your proposal of say folks within five years could automatically get their LPR, would that then jump them ahead of, that, of those folks I ask because I've got a new CEO, you may have noticed. He was an EB2. Mm -hmm. In 1992, it took him two years. Today, it would take him 10 years to get through that system. We wouldn't okay. have a new CEO under current status of the current laws, and that's why, obviously, they're incredibly draconian in many ways. So ask how you guys would, would deal with those situations. I someone um, would be willing to do the job at some wage. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, to... No, the, the, the reason our green card system is so backed up right now is because the federal government does a lot of things before it, you know, grants the green card. It has to do a labor certification. It has to do a background check. It's, there is a whole gauntlet of things that it has to go through. In the system that we are envisioning, where the federal government's role is confined to doing a security and a health check, and the rest of it is up to the states, you know, to certify that, 
the, you know, that they need this person. There's an em there are employment opportunities for this person. Once that part is taken care of the state at the state level, I imagine it will free up a great deal of the federal bureaucracy to very expeditiously process green card. Uh, you know, applications. I mean, in uh, in the PNP program, it takes the Canadian government a year to process the whole thing. Just a year. Here, it takes our government, as you pointed out, about 12 years to process a, uh, a green card application. Yeah, so I would just second, second those points. I, I also would point out that um, there's... In response to the previous question, there there probably are a diversity of views from employers on whether these things should be employment-based or sponsored at the state level. So I just want to recognize there that there's a trade-off. So there may be firms that are really good at working the current system to get employment-based visas for their employees, and they may be loath to adopt a system where it's more open um, and they'd have to compete for those employees. But there may be other firms that aren't so good at that and don't see the cost, the legal cost of going through this whole uh, exercise in order to get those foreign workers um, as, as worth those costs. So I think in, in that regard, you, it's not clear to me, in other words, whether employers would line up to say, no, 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 we want the employment-based visa system because it gives us more power. Um, and I guess Microsoft is a case in point. Just to add to that very quickly, which is that, you know, I mean, this, the, I, I wish actually, Brandon, you had used a term other than bonding <laughs> in your paper because it conjures up all kinds of images about endangered servitude, which is not exactly right. the point. I mean, in a, in a way, you know, very often employers, even with American citizens, have, quote unquote, a bonding system, which is that, if you leave, they'll give you a signing bonus, you know, when you join a company. And if you don't stay with the company for an X amount of time, then you have to return that bonus. So in a way, you know, you already have employers trying to retain their employees, American employees, for a certain amount of time. This is in some ways a variation on that idea. So it is... Uh, so if you have an employer-based system, I mean, I imagine employers can form all kinds of contractual arrangements with the potential recruits, you know, and, you know, it's sort of the possibilities are infinite. They can give them a signing bonus and ask them to stay with them for three years. They can have the employees give them something up front and, uh, you know, confiscate that if the employee happens. I mean, there are all kinds of arrangements that, you know, would then compete to see which one works best for the employee too. I mean, what we've got to remember over here is that the employee over here has a choice. When you multiply choices for employees, the outcomes are never bad. That's what we are trying to propose over here. Uh, two quick things. One thing is I encourage everyone here to look at the World Economic Forum's Global Competitiveness Report and their assessment of the quality of Canada's public sector institutions versus those of the United States. Just to reflect on it, I won't tell you what it is. Spoiler. I won't spoil it for you, rather. Uh, the other thing is that um, Douglas Massey has done some really fascinating and important work about what has happened in the post-IRCA era. That is, what has happened since the mid-'80s when we've tried to increase interior enforcement. And one of the things that's happened is that you see the rise of so-called staffing organizations that sit between the employer and many employees, partly to limit the damage associated with legal liability. So it's interesting to think about what might happen in the world in which you have uh, you know, these, these new arrangements. Uh, you know, Brandon talks about state exchanges and much else. I mean, I think that the, the, it 
it could be a very good thing, but it could also be a world in which employers gain a lot more leverage through state governments over their uh, employees, and it's not obvious to me that that would be a good thing. Next question, um, right here. Thank you, Alex. I'm Matt Graham from the Bipartisan Policy Center. Um, this question is mostly directed at uh, Rehan. I gotta hand it to you. You raised some really thoughtful critiques of this particular proposal. Um, and what I'm kind of wondering is, do you see those problems as inherent to a systems where states get to request or get a carve out for visas? Or do you see some role for a program like that if we consider all those questions and answer them the right way? I have a very, first of all, I should recommend everyone uh, in the room, uh, you ought to follow what Matt Graham writes uh, on immigration policy. He does a lot of incredibly valuable work uh, on, uh, on immigration enforcement issues, but other issues as well. Um, so I think that this reflects my bias. I am a great believer in federalism, but as I noted earlier, my belief is that the way to really think about federalism is that the federal government should have exclusive responsibility over some areas and state government should have exclusive responsibility over other areas. And I just think things tend to work better that way. Um, and so I, I'd say that I have a strong bias against having some kind of state role. Um, you know, I, I can imagine some program that would get through these hurdles. But thing is, when you think about the policing that you need from the federal level of government, when you think about trying to protect the interests uh, of workers, including foreign workers, uh, I just think that a federal approach is going to be better. And what you need, the kludgy system that you need to make a state approach work decently well, would be one that would not actually yield many of the benefits that Brandon and Sean see in a much more open-ended, lightly regulated, very loose uh, system of state-based visas. All right, next question, this gentleman right here. And this will have to be the last question. I'm sorry, it's a terrible question. No, I'm kidding. Well, John then, then maybe we can do another one. <laughs> John Graham from the National Center for Policy Analysis. Uh, you mentioned, Asika, that uh, you know the, the state of the immigration debate generally in our population is pretty degraded. So your proposal that uh, you get this visa that's state-based, and then you get a green card and a path to naturalization. I don't see how that overcomes the restrictionist objective. So what, what is the tactic to navigate this through restrictionist, restrictionist objectives? Well, I mean, the, 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 the step that's there is that you have a three or four year intervening period, you know, where the, uh, the immigrant who comes in comes in not because he's jumping a border, but he's very, very closely tied to the economic needs of, you know, of a particular area. And if you, you know, look at the evidence, uh, you know, when you have that kind of very close matching of labor needs and immigrant needs, labor then tends to locate in those areas where they are needed, not where they are not needed. So once you have a system like that in place where, you know, you're directing the immigration stream properly, I imagine the restrictionists would have to worry a little bit less about, you know, who's getting inside their particular state. But I agree with you. I mean, it's, you know, with them, I mean, there are, there is a certain group of people whom you're never going to be able to win. The question is if you can move the more reasonable people in your direction by placating some of the reasonable concerns. 
I should just say, as the voice of restrictionism on this panel, uh, ironically enough, I think that's exactly the issue. I think that the way that Shika frames it earlier on as a kind of Solomonic choice, uh, I think is interesting as framing, but I think the trouble is that if you really have objections on restrictionist grounds, I don't think this does very much for you at all. Uh, if your belief is that this might be a political strategy to facilitate a net increase in immigration, then I think it makes some sense, uh, assuming unreasonable people like myself, uh, you know, aren't um, doing a very good job of, uh, of making the objections. Thank you very much. And thank you to all of you for coming here today and listening to our presentation. Uh, lunch will be served upstairs on the second level of the George M. Yeager Conference Center. Just go out here to your left and up the spiral staircase. Uh, restrooms are also on the second floor on the way to lunch. Uh, look for the yellow wall. Thank you very much. Yeah.